the New England Ski Journal's Base Camp Podcast, presented by Country Ski and Sport. Ski season is here, and it's time to gear up at Country Ski and Sport. Shop now for your best preseason deals at any of their three locations in Hanson, Quincy, and Westwood, Mass. Or shop online at CountrySki.com. Hey everyone and welcome into the New England Ski Journal's Basecamp Podcast. I am New England Ski Journal editor Eric Wilbur. I am joined by my Basecamp co-host, Mike Specian. Mike, how are you? Eric, I'm doing fantastic. You are fresh in from Utah. What were you doing out there? I am. I sure wasn't skiing yet, but no, I was out there for the winter sport market, the National Ski Show. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where I was. You know, what, 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 what does that entail? Like, what do you do during that? Well, that is a B2B show, mm-hmm. okay? Unlike the shows here in New England, this is selling to the retailers. All the retailers, the major retailers from New England were out there. Mm-hmm. And with my my chance to sell my goods, but also see what else is out there. And what I did see, which was pretty cool, is that I got to look at Hestra. I, I have to say, Hestra... Thank you for supporting us, and thank you for the – I've got a lot of Hestra gloves, but thanks for the new pair of Ergo gloves that I got from you this year because they have been tremendous in this this season. Yeah, they are. I mean, I feel like I'm a Hestra expert now because I just go around and talk and, like, you know, hey, look at my gloves. Um, top-notch, warmest gloves I've ever worn. If you're ever concerned about having your hands cold, don't want to deal with hand warmers, this is it. Can you introduce me to your, your models here, though? Well, yeah, I, I actually brought some in today. The new Ergo Grip that came, I wanted something that I could wear day in and day out. My driving glove, I did sell a different brand at one point. And I'll tell you what, they are amazing. Gore-Tex, windproof. It's been my go-to glove as I've been rehabbing this year, walking. And then, then I've got your tr- traditional rawhide leather which is my everyday ski club. Um, it is it is awesome. It is so comfortable. And and then when when there's fresh snow, Eric just put it on. And then when there's fresh snow or skiing the big mountains, I go to the heli glove. Nice. And yeah, that's why I've, I got the army yep. here. And this thing, I mean, it's just the one thing I want to say about this, you would think that, the glove warmth, right? And the way my hand feels and it would be enough. Oh no. This little sucker right here is a big time that's addition. A, that's the first time you've ever had a That's loop? the first time I've ever had a Boy, hoop. where have you been, man? <laughs> when Skiing in jeans up until I'm 21, apparently. Yeah, well. So just that little thing makes me happy. What what he what he's talking about, since everybody can't necessarily see it. Well, they can see it here. Is the loop. Well, you can't see it on the podcast. No, well, so. on, on my army leather gloves, there is a loop, Hestra loop. And it is just a little addition to those that I just, I, I can't get over. The The fact that these come down to almost my middle of my wrist here, keeps the snow out, you, keeps my hands warm. I'm in love. I will never stop talking about these. Well, things. when you have to take that glove off to adjust something, having something to hold it on your wrist is crucial. Right, of course. Any glove. But so so the trip out west was was fantastic. There's a lot of optimism out there because we started pretty weak here in New England and across the country. But I'll tell you what, flying over the Wasatch, ooh, 
There's some snow out there. I can only imagine. There, the Wasatch, for anybody heading west, is 100 to 108% of snowpacked. So they they are on fire also, just like we we came around. I'd like to ask you more about some some of the stuff with what's new coming on the market, but I know we've got our guests coming up here. But quickly, I did want to ask you about, do you know anything about the Bootronics, or I'm sorry, Hottronics boot cap? The Hottronics boot cap. Yes. I have not seen it. Okay. But it is, it's from Hottronics. Yep. It's literally a little piece of plastic that you attach to the top corner of your boot right where the toes are. Okay. okay yep. And you attach it with, I guess, I don't know, cape. It, it's literally caped on there. People are raving about these, like saying that it's an 80% warmer foot by putting these things on. Reviewers and testers that are that are using these are saying they're knockout. They're they're awesome. 50 bucks. And so I'm gonna go buy a pair of these just to so, see. So going you're gonna go buy those and you still don't have heated socks. I'm with- buying the heated sock. Let me tell you the conversation I have with my wife just the other day. I said, Mike is insistent I've got to buy some heated socks. I'm going to go buy some heated socks. And she looked at me and she says, that sounds awfully kind of just gimmicky. Okay, to all the listeners and to Eric Wilbur, okay, <laughs> they're not a gimmick. They they will change your life. Hottronics has them. Acetus has them. Lentz has them. Um, once you ski with them. So anything on the outside of the boot um, and I was just with Winter Winter That's Steiger. what I don't get. It's on the outside of the boot. So how is this Winter Winter Steiger is the distributor for Hottronics. I was just with Winter Steiger friends. I've got close friends with Boot Dock and Hottronics, which are one and the same. Mm-hmm. And I will find out, but neoprene covers for boots, anybody that's seen them, I've worn them. Really? They they help, but snow does get behind them. And if you can go inside the boot with something, Hottronics inside the boots work well, but they just cover the toe. The heated sock gives you the hole. Okay. So before this weekend, I will get those heated socks and I will ski in them and we'll have a nice little discussion about how much I love them. Because I'm sure I will. It's, it's going to be, it'll be a game changer on those cold days. Absolutely. Okay. So today we have, I'm excited on the, on the show to have Tim Witten is the executive, executive. Executive Director of the New England Ski Museum, which we've talked about in this program before. I love going in there. I love sitting in the library in North Conway and just pouring over the thousands of copies of skiing, skiing magazines they have. He's going to join us to tell us some neat things going on at the museum lately and kind of give us a little glimpse into skiing history. Yeah, the New England Ski Museum is... We have the Colorado Ski Museum. We have the Vermont Ski Museum. We have the U.S. Ski and Snowboard Museum. But really, the, the Mac Daddy of them all is right here in North Conway in Franconia. And I can remember walking into Franconia just being in awe of being at, up at Cannon. Every, every time I walked in, it was something new and exciting that I had never seen before. And it really... It really gave me a great feeling of how the ski industry started as a whole, but here in New England. And it also, when you look at the old skis, makes makes me appreciate what we have today. Oh, for sure. Tim has been in, in this job for, I think, a little over a year. He took over for Jeff Leach, who yep. was there for years and years and years. And he's already done some some great innovative things. He's got some 
big ideas on how to transform the museum into for a new generation and how new people can experience it and you know what that means for New England skiing history. So Tim will be on with us in just a moment right after this. All right, welcome back into the show. Joining us on the line from North Conway, New Hampshire, right? Is that North Conway? It is. North Conway, New Hampshire. Tim Witten, Executive Director of the New England Ski Museum. We're going to talk skiing history, which is one of my favorite topics, obviously. Hi, Tim. Really stoked to have you on here today. Yeah, no, I'm excited. This is going to be fun. Yeah, why do do you tell us, us and the audience, a little bit about how you grew up? Sure. So I grew up in Maine. Unfortunately, I can't say that I'm a true Mainer because I was not born in the state and I've not lived there 99 consecutive years yet. So so not a true Mainer. I was born in Burlington. We bounced around a bit. But yeah, skiers. My dad was teaching skiing for Mansfield Company and doing marketing for them in the late 80s uh, when I was born. And then we ended up at Sugarloaf and then eventually ended up in Portland. And, and yeah, ski family. So we'd go up to the mountains, whether it was Sugarloaf or Sunday River, on Abram, come to the Whites. We'd ski in all winter and we'd be in the mountains the rest of the time too, hiking and running and, and all of that stuff. Eventually we moved more into the cross country side of things for whatever reason. And that's kind of where we lived. And I raced middle school, high school, college, raced for a little bit after college, coached for a while. and. Now, in some roundabout ways, here we are. So I I actually want to go back to middle school because in middle school, you were frustrated that your school didn't have a cross-country team. How dare that? You actually started the Portland Ski Club. So how did did that come about and what prompted you to begin this? I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) To be totally honest, I don't remember it at all. But apparently I came home one day in sixth grade and I'd, I'd really caught the running bug by then. And yeah, I guess I came home and said, "Hey, can we have uh, have a ski team, a uh, cross country ski team, not not just not not an alpine team?" And my parents are kind of go getters, especially my mom, and they worked really closely with Nensa. They worked with the Portland School District, and they made it happen somehow. And during high school, used to have in Portland, used to have an old dirt track. It's now state-of-the-art complex, but we'd push you in a trail and ski around that just in the, very much the old ways. Uh, and then eventually by, a, I think it was eighth grade, that would have been 98 or 99, the club bought, bought a snowmobile, yeah, low-torque snowmobile, and worked with the city itself to start grooming trails at Riverside Golf Course, and they're still doing it. It's not the same sled. But they're still doing it and they're still, I think at this point, the Bill Coke Middle School program, I think is the largest in the state. So it was not at the time. But yeah, it's really taken off. They've had some kids win some state championships. And yeah, it's a, it's a pretty cool operation at this point. That's amazing. That's great. That's, I love the fact in middle school you took that initiative, which is really cool. I, the- I can't take credit for taking the initiative. Just that fun. I maybe said, hey, can we do this? And my parents, my parents took it, well, just like so many other ski families do. Yeah, yeah. The interesting historical thing about this is, as I've been digging into our archives, we have the original documents from USISA, which is U.S. Eastern Amateur Ski Association. And so we have a 1923 book 
of their meeting minutes. And in those original minutes, you had you had Dartmouth Outing Club, you had the, the Charlie Proctors, you had Lake Placid Ski Club, you had Bennington. You also had Portland Ski Club, Portland, Maine Ski Club. Nobody from Boston, no offense, guys. Uh, nobody from New York City, nothing like that. But you had Portland Ski Club there representing as founding member of what is ostensibly the original national governing body. A little, that, little that's, trivia. Dude. That's fascinating. Where did you go to college, by the way? I went to Bates College. You went to Bates, okay. You altered some plans. What you were going to do, you, you met a woman like, my plans got altered pretty dramatically the same way. Whose didn't? Exactly. How did, how did that work out? It worked out pretty well. We're still together. We have a couple kids. One of them's turning two today. So okay. yeah, no, I was, I, I, I was ski racing a little bit after college and realized that I think had reached most of the end of the road there and happened to move back to Portland and met a girl and it was, yeah, we moved across the country to Bozeman, Montana within nine months and kind of the rest is history from there. So she was not a skier. She's becoming one now slowly. So. Yeah, not not exactly what I was planned. I had applied to grad school in Oslo, Norway, and had originally thought I was going to be going over there for a master's and then probably a PhD. Not on ski topics, more in the politics world. Thought I might be racing for a club over there, and that didn't happen. So, here we <laughs> but are. you but you did pursue your PhD, and you did do it in skiing. So, how did you make that shift, and how did you kind of focus on that as you were? bopping around the country. Sure. Yeah. So that's a very roundabout way, very happenstance, not too unlike some other ski historians that I think we'll talk about a little bit later, John John Allen being one. So we ended up in Bozeman. I was bored. I was working full time and was not, I was, I was intellectually not stimulated enough. So I hit it off with one of the professors in the history department there Went through a master's there, a master's in history and geography. And my primary research there was on the history of mapping, history of cartography. Knew I eventually wanted to do a PhD, but my wife, Tara, knew better of what she wanted to do. So we were in Johnson City, Tennessee, which is a cool spot. There's actually some really cool skiing around there. But uh, yeah, not a great place for a, for a PhD for me. We headed up back in Maine, and I was in the UMaine system coaching and had tuition coverage. So started started a PhD in history there and pulled together a topic. I sort of think that the way into this and maybe the best way to explain this is, so my parents met in 1978-ish at Evergreen Valley, which is in Stoneham, Maine. And Evergreen had a multi-million dollar lodge, night skiing, snowmaking, and whole golf course. And it's no longer operational. It, it folded in the early 80s. And so thinking about that from a historical perspective, like a, the history discipline, trying to really understand why that area and others like it, unlike it, especially in the Northeast, folded was the project. So it's basically become the history of U.S. skiing post-World War II with a highlight on the industry and culture of the 60s, 70s, 80s. Okay. And so I got to ask, is there anywhere else you can more perfectly use this PhD topic than what you're doing right now? Correct? No. 
<laughs> which was, so we were living in Aroostook County. My wife had a tenured professor position. Aroostook County is a much more affordable place in the Mount Washington Valley. We were pretty settled in there, pretty comfortable. And this popped up and it took some back and forth and figuring out. And yeah, I think her comment was something like, if you don't take this job, <laughs> right. what else are you going to do? <laughs> which, which, I mean, there's a lot of other, a lot of other things I could do. What of I would course, say yeah. is, what I would say is that this is my, my PhD is, it's a PhD in history. So I'm a trained historian, I have lots of other academic and personal interests, and, but dissertation on a ski topic. So no, definitely not. This is, this is the place to use it for sure. But I just think it's fascinating. Like when they must've put this position open, when Jeff left, and here you come with your resume. How could they not, how could they not hire you? Right. It's like this perfect marriage. So perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, it's interesting. Like there are a lot of other people out there that could do aspects of this job. And I don't want to necessarily toot my horn too much here though. There's significant administrative components to this job that other people certainly on paper were more qualified for. But I think it's it's having that perspective, having that training on being able to contextualize skiing that really sets, certainly sets me apart. But it's also a lot of what Jeff and John Allen and others in within this museum's organization have been doing that really sets us apart. I'm also a trained archivist, which is very important here because we have the largest, most comprehensive ski related archive outside of Europe probably soon to be the largest in the world within the next couple of years. So yeah, it's kind of just all fortuitously kind of merged together in, in the right sort of ways. But yeah, I know it's, it's good. The admin stuff, yes, maybe not the most fun, but I enjoy being in the ski community. I enjoy talking to people like yourselves and like others, collecting history, and then certainly trying to synthesize that into a variety of content mediums, whether it's written or audio or video or exhibits and things like that. Well, it, it seems like you coming on board is almost like a perfect marriage with your background, your passions, and what the Ski Museum brings to the whole skiing community. You guys have two different locations, right? Yes. We, we sort of have three and we're working on four. Uh, oh. So, in that, and that's not necessarily big news, but I'll, I'll sort of lay it out. So, the original museum location is... In Franconia Notch, it's in the state park. It's at the bottom, right next door to the Cannon Mountain Tramway. And that's been there since 82. We opened a second museum location in North Conway in 2018. That's right in the village. I'm looking at the train station right now. So if you think about all those ski train, Conway Scenic Railroad, Boston and Maine ski train images, that's right, right there. So we're right, right, right in the strip here. So. We also have a third building that not many people know about. It is our archive and collections building. It's about 4,000 square feet. It's tucked away in Franconia Notch on the side of Canyon. Fortunately, right now, not open to the public, but it's full of everything from your skis, boots, poles, film, clothing, ephemera, pins, patches, posters, library, periodicals, all of it. So it's there. And we're working on the fourth, which is a digital version of that. Awesome. Very cool. You did a Q&A with us a little over a year ago talking how you wanted to broaden pers our perspectives of the museum, grow membership, and attract younger members. Collecting stories, digitizing collections, 
How is that process going and what lies ahead? It's going pretty well. I mean, there's always, you, you start something and this isn't the first time I've started a new job in, in a relatively high role. You have sort of the wish list things, the things that you think you're going to get done right away. And then, of course, priorities and, and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. So the sort of the oral history collection that you mentioned there, we haven't necessarily found a great way to do that. Zoom might be a solution, but it's not super personal. So we need to kind of circle back to that as we move forward and into this sort of digitization process, which is really where we're headed. So the, like I mentioned, the archive, the collection, we need to not only preserve it, but we need to make it more accessible. We need to make it accessible for ourselves and we need to make it accessible for the public. We have a variety of researchers, whether they're academic or more popular they come through. We get a lot of image requests and document requests, particularly from the industry and journalists. But then there's also people that just are going to want to see what's out there. And I got I got Sig Bookmeyer Jr., who's Sig Bookmeyer's son, famous famous name in the industry. Got him into our archive this past fall, and I mean, he was just basically had to drag him out of there, kicking and screaming because he wanted to spend the whole day there. So we need to make that more accessible for people. Um, it's digital preservation, which is really at the core of what we do is preservation, but also that accessibility piece. So we actually have a company from Portland, Maine coming starting next Monday, uh, and we're going through sort of a preliminary assessment process of what is that going to look like? What is that going to cost? And then it's up to us to to make it happen. Nice. Perfect. So the the Hans Schneider Meister Cup is really a benchmark event in the Mount Washington Valley. You suggested at one point that maybe we could do something different, and Ben Wilcox said, no way. What does that tell you about the tradition of that particular event? I, I mean, I think it speaks to how important this event is, not just to us as an organization, but to the Mount Washington Valley and into the the skiing in the White Mountains, it it's it has a race component though it's relatively mellow. There are gates and you have to go around them and you have a bib and it's timed and there's results and yada yada. But it's it's pretty mellow though. We do have the likes of Tyler Palmer and Leanne Smith, former Olympians and U.S. ski team members that do race, and Leanne is still very fast. But it, it's it's really. I mean, in the name, the overall name, the Hannes Schneider name, the Schneider family name, it really is more of a celebration of skiing in the valley. It's more a celebration of winter and the long history and heritage of that in the valley. And so we get a lot of kids, a lot of little kids racing and being part of it. And it's not just a race. There's a lot of different components to it. And we're sort of flushing that out and growing that sort of portfolio programs for for the event but yeah it's just an opportunity for four or five hundred people to come together at cranmore usually the weather is like perfect i'm sure this year with the new lodge and deck and stuff it, it won't be but <laughs> we'll we'll hope that it is and yeah it's just it's a ton of fun great food there's great beer there's great music and there's just it's it's a ton of fun it's it's like what we all might imagine the 50s and 60s were like a cran, uh, in a lot of ways with the camaraderie and, and the skiing and, and all of that stuff. Is it a vital event for raising awareness of the museum? 
Yeah, and it's it's our biggest single fundraiser of the year. Last year was over $40,000, which goes a huge ways towards getting us towards our mission and and certainly through the the quieter spring and summer months. And and it yeah, just it brings it brings everybody that's part of our organization and a huge number of skiers from across the country, New England and the Valley to one central place to to work together towards something. Any more events of that kind down the road or what do you think? Yeah, yeah. So the the Meister Cup, we're growing it a little bit this year. So we've had it capped at 200 racers in the past. We're going to cap it at 250 this year. We're also adding or growing the fashion show. So you guys need to come up with your uh, with your neon onesies and such and, and strut, <laughs> strut down the aisle. So yeah, we've got, it's typically been your, your wool and wood for the fashion. Now we're adding some neon and, and some more modern vintage, if you will. But we're also going to do a Saturday night trivia, ski history, of course, so people can test their knowledge. And then there's a Sunday is going to be more of a brunch and a film showing from our, from our collection. But I've been talking to the folks at Waterville Valley. Next year, we're going to put on a cross-country ski race there that will be the longest cross-country ski race in North America. Wow. So that'll be, be pretty cool. It'll be sort of a good blend between citizens racing, high-level elite racing, tour. Yeah, it's going to be a really cool event. And it's going to hit a lot of their trails, which are old school, but still sort of modern, in the village, out of the village. So that's going to be cool. We're also working with NENSA, which is the New England Nordic Ski Association. And we're going to put on a roller ski race next fall in Franconia Notch on the rec path. So that'll be be pretty cool. And, and just lots of other... I wouldn't say little things. We're talking to the guys at Tenny, and I think we're going to be over there in a couple of weeks supporting that with some. I just saw that. Yeah, tell- so it's it's yeah, it's we're we're figuring out how we how we fit into that, and with the imagery and the, and the collection that we have, we have we have a lot of ways to help support other events. We have a lot of ways to create a variety of content for people and organizations, particularly in the industry. So. Yeah, we're just trying to get ourselves out there and see how best we can support other things that are happening. Well, you said the longest cross-country event. I just met somebody that was so excited they're doing the Berkey coming up, and that is the benchmark. New England could have the new benchmark in cross-country, hopefully. Yeah, uh, that'd be cool. I mean, the Berkey's three because it's point-to-point, and it's the Berkey. Uh, so I don't, I don't know if we'll quite get there, but it's going to be Pretty cool. So many of the cross-country ski races now happen on super hard, super technical courses, shorter loops. And this one be long loops, a little less technical, maybe some old school in there. So, yeah, it should be super fun. That's well, awesome. Well, that's awesome. Well, my wife and I are members of the Museum of Fine Arts here in Boston, of course. And when we go to the museum, there's different exhibits and stuff. Why do you fill us in? We haven't talked about what somebody's going to see when they walk up to the museum. Sure. So let's see. Let's start with Franconia. So you come in, there's the one of the original tram cars, which makes you really scared of like, they're going up Cannon Mountain, one of these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, make, it makes you appreciate the new stuff. So we've got original tram car that you walk through. And then we have an annual exhibit in the middle. That's typically photographs or images. This year it's on ski towns, Franconia being one of the originals. 
And then around the perimeter is, you know, some of your permanent exhibits. We've got Bodie Miller's World Cup Globes and Medals. We've got some video. We've got maybe the oldest book with a ski reference from many centuries ago. And then North Conway kind of hits you like a, like a big ski lodge, big rafters, big open ceilings, a lot of different exhibits. There's CCC, there's 10th Mountain, there's Olympians. And then right now there's the Anna Lee doll exhibit, which is for me, not being from New Hampshire, a little way over my head, but it's, it's pretty cool. So there's this company that started right around World War II depression. And it was a family, the Thorndike family, and they started making dolls. And they weren't, what's really interesting about them is they weren't toys. They were immediately and originally designed as a collector's item. And their first dolls were skiers, which represented not just the family's deep integration with skiing, like their kids grew up skiing and Chuck Thorndike, who's son. So the, the third generation, one of those kids was an Olympian, but it really just speaks to New Hampshire's very close connection with skiing all the way back to the early 20th century. So, and then this, this thing just, it, it took off. The Inley thing took off. They had shops in their prime facility. Uh, I think their head office is still up in Meredith. So yeah, anybody that's been and grown up in New Hampshire knows Annalee. Those of us that haven't don't know it as well, but they're cool dolls, close connection to skiing for a long time. And so we've got an, a ski with Annalee exhibit right now. And we work closely with New Hampshire Historical Society to get some dolls on loan, which is a pretty big deal. And there, those ones are scattered in cases throughout the museum, sort of part of a treasure hunt for the kids. And then there's a really cool exhibit that our, our manager here, Elaine Stockbridge, put together. So, yeah, a little different, a little out of the box, but that's kind of some of the stuff we're trying to do. Mix it up a little bit. Yeah, I thought it was brilliant like when I saw it announced. And I immediately thought my mom loved Annalie Dolls. And now I will have to bring her in there to kind of experience that. So it, it's going to bring me in there. There's no doubt. Yeah. Yeah, gonna, well, make sure you guys get it. I was going to be there anyway because your library, as you mentioned, Mudhone, it is it is the best place for a ski geek to just go and immerse yourself in all this periodical from the past 40 years, 50 years. You said it's the biggest in the state, obviously, but is the biggest in New England and the biggest in the world soon? Is it bigger than the ski museum in um, Ishpening? Yes. Yeah. So the collection itself is bigger than what they have. The wow. Ishpeming is Hall of Fame. So they, you know, they have some collection, they have some archival stuff, but in terms of most comprehensive and sort of the broadest breadth of what a archive would be, this is definitely the largest and most comprehensive outside of Europe. And the library is really the, the I would say the core piece to that. That's how the New England Ski Museum got its start. It was six six guys as a book group and then it sort of took off from there so yeah it's I, I think the best way i would explain it is maybe a little roundabout so when i was doing my phd research really interested in the imagery of skiing particularly in the popular periodicals like ski skiing all of those and i i got in touch with all these companies and wanted access to to their to their magazines and their their collection Everybody was super psyched. Yeah, totally full access. Whatever you need, no cost. Great. 
kind of waited for a couple of weeks and was like, so what's like uh, login and password and stuff? And I'm like, oh, no, no, no. You have to come to our offices, which of course are all at West and you got to dig through our basement. And I was like, no, I'm not going to do that. So I landed here and we've got them all. And we've got multiple copies of pretty much all issues of all of them. So that really kind of speaks to what, what this organization has been doing. We've got a board member who I think coined it best. We are basically the industry and the culture of skiing's repository. Um, sort of just what the organization's been doing and we've got it all and we're going to use it. It's tremendous. It really is. If you haven't been there in the North Conway area location, go to the ski museum and just, you can sit there for hours and just relive the 70s, 80s, 90s through skiing and skiing. And it's, when I was doing research for the book I wrote with uh, Dan Ingen a few years ago, uh, luckily a lot of ski and skiing magazines are on Google books. So it was able, it was easy to kind of go back and, and reference them. But when I walked into there that one day doing research and I was just, I was stuck there for hours. I just, I couldn't escape because I even just not doing research for the book, just being in that, it was like being a kid again. And it was also just the, the pleasant experience of opening a magazine, which is something we sadly don't do as much anymore. Yeah, for sure. And so it's, it's a pretty comfy library space. There's a gas fireplace that gets super hot. So yeah, people should just come hang out. We're open 10 to 5 every single day. Don't need a reservation. It's free. We'd love to see more people just hanging out, especially in the library. And the staff are all really knowledgeable. They're all talkers. Yes. So, oh, yeah, it's it's a good place to, to come and, and spend a lot of time. It really is. It's fun. It's kind of cool. It's chill. It's it's a nice place. Well, let me ask you this. How can, I've been involved for a long time, but how can the listener get involved with the museum? How how do you fund it? So it's, it's, it's small dollar funded. It's grassroots, really. So a lot of membership dues. We rely on those members also for general donations. We are working with a grant writer right now and we anticipate probably by September 1st, we'll have put in close to $2 million for grants, but it's still the day-to-day -day operations. It's member supported. Our website, which admittedly needs a very significant upgrade, and I apologize to anybody that goes to check it out. It's a bit of a relic. Yeah, check that out. Purchase a membership. They're 35 The, the introductory ones are $35 a year, which hasn't changed in... 25 almost 30 years so if you do that math on the inflation it's it's pretty significant but you get access to our events you get discounts in the retail shop which it's, it's a pretty cool retail shop especially if you want to be buying some books this is the place to do it but then you also get our quarterly journal and that's well, there's there's lots of lots of publications out there there's a variety of ski history publications out there this one really relies very extensively on the collection, on the archive. It's not academic, so it's not it's not as technical and dry. So people shouldn't be afraid of it, but it is footnoted and it really dives deep onto certain topics in a way that I don't think anybody else's publication does right now. So that's a great way to get involved and get started. Certainly just general donations are always appreciated. Those can come in through the website, phone, in person here. But yeah, there's there's lots of ways. Last question before we let you go. I, I do want to mention that the museum recently bestowed noted historian, skiing historian E. John B. Allen, the Spirit of Skiing Award. What can you tell us about that award and why he received it? Which sure. Award? 
I know why he received it. But <laughs> yeah. So the award has been given out, I think, since 2008 or so. There was talk of doing a Hall of Fame, but, you know, everybody kind of does their Hall of Fame and you start to run out of names. And yeah, this was really about honoring individual individuals that have really been exemplary people of skiing or snowboarding or winter sports. And so it's it's a little hard to explain. The criteria is 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 a little a little gray. It's not cut and dry. But yeah, it's it's really meant to honor those people that have really contributed to skiing in in whatever way they have. And John John is the preeminent historian of skiing. Most of his work has focused on the pre-World War II era, and he's written the books on it. He is the expert on it, and he's been pretty understated in a lot of those ways. Certainly, anybody that's done reading or done their own research on the history of skiing has worked with John Stupp, and that's, that's sort of the point. If you want to get into where skiing has been and how it got to, especially in the 1950s, you have to read John's work. And what's most interesting about it, you're not going to be able to add anything to it. There's not a whole lot out there that John hasn't covered pre-1950, pre-World War II. So he, he really, for those of us that have started to do our own research, John is the foundation. And he's, he's a trained academic historian as well. Interestingly, not on a ski topic. He came to that in a roundabout way. But on Renaissance diplomacy, and he's written two books on Renaissance diplomacy back in the 70s. So. Yeah, so he's, he's a super cool guy, too. He's been a long, a founding member of the organization. He just, yeah, he's absolutely the right type of person to be getting that type of award. So we had a, had a big shindig at the Mittersill Comp Center uh, at Cannon a couple of weeks ago. 100 people there. We raised $20,000 for a fund that John put together for the museum that's designed to fund publications for us, research and publications such as the journal. We want to grow it to a seven figures at some point over time so that it can spin off enough that we can be producing the type of content that John has produced. And we want to be able to produce it on a, on a quarterly, monthly, yearly basis in a variety of formats. Yeah, it was, it was a super fun event. And then time for us to, to make John the center of attention, which he kind of kicked and screamed into it a little bit, but I was able to convince him. And yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. Well, that's that's a great way to end this discussion because I want to tell the listening audience that if you're at all interested in skiing history, one, make a stop to the New England Ski Museum in both locations. Two, pick up John B. Uh, John's latest book. I'm not sure if it's new anymore. It's two years old. Traveling the Ski Tracks of New England for a real detailed look at how skiing sort of began in this region. Like, it, it's it's fascinating to learn, like, all the ski clubs from Massachusetts and how they migrated here and there. It's it's a really well done account of how skiing really started in New England. And it's just something I've never really read before and, and kind of brought in. So thank you to John. Thank uh, Tim. Thank you very much. Yeah, Tim. Thank, thank you so much. And all I can say to the listener, even if you've been there once, go back because every time you walk into a museum, you see something new that you never saw before. I don't care if it's an art museum or the ski museum. I want to thank you for being here and I will see you up in North Conway in my travels. Very good. Sounds great. Thank you guys. Appreciate it. Excellent. Tim Witten, executive director at New England Ski Museum. We'll be right back.
Hey, welcome back into the Basecamp podcast, Mike. Tim, Tim is a fascinating guy. I, I love talking to him, and he is so geeked into skiing history more than I am, which I makes me just want to talk to him even more. Well, I'm stunned at his background. Right, I'm it's fascinating. A, a PhD in history, being a history guy, r- running a museum. I mean, I saw, I could feel the difference when we're talking about skiing. Sometimes, um. You know, we all get a little sentimental. You got really, you got a little zip in your zap when we're talking about history. I do. And and I'm not a history buff either, really. There are two things that history fascinates me. It's baseball and skiing. And I I could seriously watch Ken Burns baseball over and over and over again, even though it's the driest, most boring documentary ever created. That's like go to sleep stuff. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But I, but I love it. And, And, and it. I love the little bits of history in local areas, right? Like, so when you watch baseball, the Ken Burns documentary, and you learn about things like the Providence Reds that were in, in Rhode Island for, for decades, and you just never hear about them. Same thing with skiing, right? In that reading E. John B. Allen's book, and I wish I could do this a little bit more detailed. I've not prepared. But in the way that he describes how people from Boston and the surrounding communities of Boston started these ski clubs and we're traveling up north and where they're establishing home bases. And it's all very fascinating to kind of go back and look at those very, the genesis of what we do today, talking skiing right here, right now in the Boston area and forming our own little club here. And it's just, it's unbelievable to kind of connect those generations in that way with from, between a hundred years from now and today. Well, a hundred years to, to, Today, my question is, how do we keep this history alive with the next generation? Look, older, older people, I mean, Bernie Weichel, a very dear friend of mine, is members of every ski museum in the country, mm-hmm. and he just lives and breathes it. But how do you do that with a 30-year-old or a 40-year-old that skiing has just become another Disney World situation? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what scares me about the history of anything, because with everything in life, the past really dictates the future. And we're at a crossroads. We are. And But I think what Tim is doing and the way that he is trying to find new ways to deliver this message, which I think is something we all struggle with, right? I, I, I've been putting the, the our, our little, our audiograms for this very podcast on TikTok, which is not something I usually frequent, just because I want to try and find how to better deliver the message of the podcast being out there. And it's just it, different ways in trying to do that. And I think sometimes, in, especially in history and the Hall of Fames, and we get these real kind of like set in our ways. And I think Tim is ready to kind of bring that to a new level, to, to open the museum for a new generation. Which is exciting. And, and I, w- I will never stop talking about going to the library up there because it is, it's one of my favorite things to do in, in North Conway, just to, to sit in there and just read and read and read and read. Well, I, I think Tim is younger. Tim is a little bit more hip. And by the way, a lot I, more hip. Oh, more. You can say, I, yeah, a lot more hip. But I can, yeah, I got to go back one second. All I can visualize right now is Eric dancing in a TikTok. 
<laughs> video. Try Okay. That doesn't I, happen. I just, that does I, not happen. Sorry, folks. I just went sideways. So. But you'd be amazed. You would be absolutely amazed. At the pop. This is not, I'm not going to sit here and tell you the power of TikTok because I think sure. people can probably figure that out on their own. But you would be amazed at some of the things that are marketed through social media avenues like this that you never knew when it's going to click. And it just does. And TikTok, I think with the way their algorithm works, has a lot more of that potential where that click or that snap or that one magic moment could happen at any moment. But go ahead. Sure. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> no, I, I think social media influencers has, it's all part of where we are today. But the moral of the story is you're not going to really appreciate it on TikTok. You're not going to appreciate it on Instagram, Facebook, or any other online venue where you will really appreciate the museum and what it's doing and the history is by stopping by there and seeing the old skis. Bodie Miller's globe, okay? Come on. Is, can, is it really real until you're right there in front of it? It's pretty cool. The, and then the, obviously we talked about the Hannes Schneider race. The 27th edition is running March 8th through 10th at Cranmore Mountain Resort. New base area to show off there. The new lodge will be there. So that's going to be kind of cool. Any other items of note on New England Ski Museum, go to the New England Ski Museum.org. As, as Tim had mentioned, the, the site is a little ancient, but I think that kind of has a little bit of charm with it too. When you're talking museum, right? It should be a little ancient. Oh, it, it, it is a little ancient. You don't want all the bells and whistles no. from a museum website. You want a little bit of kind of history. This, of this is, this is not mass mocha. Right, okay. Exactly. This is not, this is skiing history. And the last thing I want to leave everybody with when Christmas time comes, there's no better place to get a skier, a gift than the museum. They have some really cool stuff to look at to buy and make sure you get on there. $35 for a membership. Get out there and support them. Yeah, if you go to the website, you can browse through their online catalog too. I get the catalog in the mail and it's so it's, do I. it's a pleasant evening to kind of just go through that when it comes in and just, and the cost of, of the items they have is is really reasonable. It, it's a great place to shop, not only at Christmas time, but all winter long. Well, keep the history of skiing alive through this museum, please. It is. It's it's a phenomenal place, and I encourage you to go visit. Mike, anything else? That is it. Get out there, folks. The skiing's awfully good. Uh, you know, keep it going till you can't keep it going anymore. Yeah, we're in prime time. Spring's around the corner, which is my time of year. But I don't. I don't know. I heard you skied the White Ribbon of Death, so I don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know what to believe anymore. For my co-host Mike Speechin, I'm Eric Wilbur. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next. Time. New England Ski Journal's Base Camp is a Siemens Media podcast. Siemens Media, inspiring, informative, insightful.